Our next panel will be led by the former United States Deputy National Secretary, advisor to President Obama, and uh, co-founder of National Security Action, Mr. Ben Rhodes. And we will be exploring a progressive foreign policy of our time. So joining Ben, we will welcome Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Joy, and once again up on stage, former Prime Minister of Sweden, Magdalena Andersson. Give them a big applause. All right, uh, ready to talk about some progressive foreign policy. Uh, so uh, I want to start with a, uh, we're going to start broad and then go specific. Mm -hmm. And I'll start with you, uh, Melanie. The, um, when we, we look out at the world today, it's, it's quite different from, I think, the time in which people figured out progressive paradigms of foreign policy in the past. We now are in an age of intense great power competition, mm -hmm. including an active war in the European continent, uh, a time of threats within our democracies as much as uh, wanting to promote democracy in other parts of the world. And we're at a time in limited resources. Uh, you know, as Mark Carney pointed out, you know, there's, there's, you know, development is getting harder, particularly as more money is going in other spaces. So in that context, how would you define what it means to be center left or progressive in terms of foreign policy? And, and how do you define that in a way that, that voters, people can understand? Mm -hmm. That's a big question, Ben, for a Saturday afternoon. Um, so I think two things, much more on the local, like national side and then on the international side. I think that um, we know that there is discontent and frustration amongst Canadians in general and, and, and people in the U.S. And, and across the West and across the world. I think that many governments thought that... Um, Inflation would calm down and wind down as COVID would. And it, the, it was directly linked. And of course, there is a link. But meanwhile, there's been a war in Europe. Tensions are flaring in the Indo-Pacific. That is creating geopolitical risks. And risks are then, um, how can I say, they, they, they're calculated and, and, and businesses... Uh, work and so inflation and cost of living is a real issue it's not how can I say what's a foreign policy issue. it's a foreign yeah. policy issue yeah. and not only that it's the erosion of the middle class if we are not tackling this issue affordability it's what we've worked for for decades that is at stake so I think that's the first point it's not only be, being able to be good managers of the economy, it's fundamentally being there for people as they're struggling, addressing their concerns, being proactive about it. Um, and that will, I think, help to regain trust in government. So on the international side, meanwhile, we are in the midst of an international security crisis. Of course, I would know about it, uh, being the former prime minister of Sweden. But Fundamentally, what we need to do right now is, as in any international security crisis, we need to make sure that we deepen our relationship and our friendships with uh, our, our allies, of course, but we need to go out there and be in contact with countries that we don't necessarily always see eye to eye, but that we have in common the protection of uh, state sovereignty and, and ultimately, the fact that we want to keep 
the world safe. And that's really a paradigm shift for us liberals in Canada. We had former Prime Minister Trudeau, father, the Prime Minister's father, uh, who was in favor of this third way of working also with non-unaligned countries. That's what he presented at, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. So as a, a non-nuclear power, middle power, we have some experience to do that. But I think fundamentally right now we need to do more of that. So, you know, partnerships, engagement, but also getting beyond just your traditional like-minded partners uh, and addressing things like cost of living crises of that are tied to these events. Yes. That, that leads us naturally to the war in Ukraine. And I think first we should kind of pay some tribute to your leadership uh, on that issue uh, in Sweden. Um, at, 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 uh, at the outset of the war and obviously with uh, the, the NATO accession, um, the question I'm going to ask on Ukraine is, I, I think it's been, it's been interesting and, and I think inspiring the degree to which there has been unity on the center left and progressives uh, behind support for Ukraine. And actually in the United States, interestingly, given that Democrats are usually more uh, dovish, um, there's stronger support for Ukraine in the Democratic Party for a lot of reasons. Um, but the question I want to ask is, how do you sustain that support for Ukraine? Uh, um, in a con while also taking seriously the concerns that voters have that are going to be fanned, obviously, by populists, that we're spending so much money there instead of at home, that it's not clear what the end game is, that there seem to be maybe there are very real risks of a potential escalation. Um, how, do you, how do you take those concerns seriously while maintaining support? And, and how do you articulate the, the case to people for, for why we need to stay in this as long as it takes, as, as we constantly hear? I think that the answer to that question is different according to where you are in Europe, to be honest. I mean, Sweden, we are very close to Ukraine. Kiev is not very far away from Stockholm, and neither is Moscow. Our citizens, they are scared as our citizens in, 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 in Finland and the Baltics and in, in, uh, in Poland, etc., And this is a physical threat to their lives and their families' lives. Then arguing to support, keep on supporting Ukraine, of yeah. course, it's easier than if you live in Portugal or in the United States or in Canada. And by the way, thanks for all the support uh, that you have given to Ukraine, which is absolutely uh, necessary for uh, Ukraine to keep up this fight. Uh, but the argument that is crucial for, for all of us, of course, is that Ukrainians, they are fighting for a free and democratic Ukraine. But it's way more than that. Because more, what would be left of us in the European Union or in Canada or in the United States, if Russia would win this war, mm -hmm. what, did that, what would that say about us? Uh, so in that way, it's existential and we cannot let Russia win this war. Um, that is an important argument. But as you say, I think the cost of living crisis is important to keep up the willingness to also support Ukraine. Um, so I think it is so many things 
is interconnecting with security policy, but the policy with the, with the lives of ordinary people every day trying to get their life together. And just to follow up, I, I, you know, you have, I heard your panel earlier talking about some of the threats internal to democracy, but clearly there's some linkage, right? And the direct linkage is that Russia might intervene in the politics of our countries to support far-right movements or populism um, or, or to affect public opinion away from supporting uh, Ukraine. But also there's a more intangible connection in the sense that the anti-democratic wave that we're seeking to kind of weather in the in the democratic world is something that has an external component like what Putin represents and an internal component. Do you think we need to do more to draw linkages between not just saying we have to stop Putin in Ukraine so he doesn't come into the Baltics or come into uh, the Nordic countries, but also that it's our, the health of our democracies are connected to what's happening in Ukraine. Do you think we, we can do more to draw that connection yeah. for people? Yes, I definitely think so. I mean, because they are physically, uh, they are in Ukraine and uh, and in Russia, but on the internet, yeah, <laughs> they are in the the uh, the living room and the in the sofas in of of Swedish and European and probably American and Canadian citizens. Uh, all the time. And of course, we have to be better than we are at uh, showing what is actually happening, uh, but also preparing ourselves for different kinds of attacks, not only military attacks, but of course, when it comes to information uh, propaganda, uh, when it comes to disinformation, when it comes to cyber attacks, when it comes to hybrid threats. Uh, so we have to increase awareness in order to build resilience uh, in, in a broader uh, perspective than only military security. Yeah, and I think forums like this are great because we're all dealing with different versions of mm -hmm. Russia being in our pockets and our, yeah. you know, uh, uh, our online space, and, and, and sometimes we can be more collaborative. Well, I want to come back uh, to you, Foreign Minister, on this question. Uh, you mentioned it, the Global South. I know firsthand... Canada's unique role in that space. I negotiated the normalization of relations with Cuba here in Canada <laughs> at, at Wilson House outside Ottawa in about 10 meetings uh, that, that you all hosted. Um, it feels to me, and you could feel this at the G20, and, and I don't know if you want to comment on this, but you know there, there is a bit of tension. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Global South has not rallied to join a coalition of countries in support of Ukraine. I mean, I know we can point to certain UN votes where they were on the right side, but but at a minimum, it seems like it's certainly not the same degree of priority mm -hmm. to them that it is to us. Mm -hmm. And it feels sometimes like we are constantly talking to them about Ukraine when they want to focus on other issues. Mm -hmm. And I think that presents, and you and I were chatting, some complications because China is talking to them about some of the issues they want to talk about rather than you know talking to them about support for Ukraine. W what can we do, what can you do um, to kind of meet those Global South countries more where they are yeah. in ways that didn't compromise our support for, for Ukraine in any way, but, but is focused on an agenda that they care about um, and, and that doesn't inadvertently have our focus on Ukraine kind of push them deeper into a Chinese-led bloc? Well, you've said it. We need to meet countries where they are. 
I think that's fundamentally important when we engage with them on the diplomatic level. And where they are right now is that while we are in a battle of narratives against, when I say we, I mean the collective West, and we are in this battle of narratives against Russia, China, and the different battlefields are Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And what these countries are saying to us is, first, I don't want to choose. Yeah. And if forced, I want to have access to solutions. Where are your solutions? And the first country that will present me solutions, I'll be able to work with that country. And so they're dealing with compounded crisis. We know them, you know, they went through COVID. A lot of them didn't have access to the means we had and the vaccines we had, for example, to deal with our uh, public health crisis. They're dealing with the impacts of climate change. Uh, they were already uh, dealing with uh, uh, being in debt. And now they're looking at the World Bank and they're looking at the IMF and thinking, hey, can you give me some slack here? Who are these institutions? Well, actually, the G7 is in charge much more of these institutions. How come you don't help me through these institutions? And so there's a reason why just before the BRICS summit, President Biden announced $200 billion more for the World Bank and the IMF. And the U.S. saying we will put 50 uh, and, you know, the rest of the world, please come in and help. And he made that commitment also during the G20. I was talking with my Kenyan counterpart, who's a good friend of mine, a foreign minister. Uh, and he was saying, you know, can you, can you, can you help me here, Mel? I, I'm trying, I'm paying 10, really 11, 12% of interest. Portugal is paying one to 2%. You know, how, how can I deal with the impacts that, and, and, you know, how can I say no to other countries coming to see me if I'm still paying more on debt relief than I should to help my people? Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, uh, I was referring to that, but it's not as if we control our populations. Our populations are on, on their uh, iPhones, have access to information, sometimes propaganda, and they are fed with these different narratives as well coming from these different states. So I think that we can't be blind to and, and, and deaf to what they're saying to us. I think we would absolutely be, need to be in solution mode because when, what is at stake is the very credibility and legitimacy of the Bretton Woods institution and, uh, and, and even of this, the, the influence and the support of, of the West and the world. Well, uh, so I think you identified a very important point about being responsive to the agenda that they are interested in that, by the way, is also in our interest in terms of, of course. global south. Another side of this I want to ask you, Prime Minister, is about how we think about a China um, or uh, or in India even, um, and, and I'm going to ask this in the context of trade-offs. Um, international climate change, I think, is something that we just heard about uh, that 
I think we all would think is a part of what a progressive vision of, of 21st century foreign policy is, international climate negotiations and cooperation among nations. But oftentimes that involves trade-offs. You know, if I'm self-reflective about the Obama years, we gave a big bear hug to Modi uh, at the end of the Obama administration to, in part to kind of hug him into Paris, but that also kind of legitimized somebody who was moving in some anti-democratic directions. Um, we similarly had a very engagement-forward policy with Xi Jinping to get to Paris that I think people, you know, a lot of people have identified, I think, rightly, that at a time when she was showing uh, some increasingly, obviously, authoritarian tendencies. How do you think about, and what would you advise leaders across the democratic world, this issue of, you know, the trade-offs, if we are increasingly in a confrontational stance towards a China, or if we want to be more outspoken on, say, human rights concerns in, in India, that may complicate international climate negotiations. Um, but if you prioritize the international climate negotiations as we did before Paris, that may kind of, you know, avoid confronting what are really concerning behaviors out of the, the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, how do you look at that issue? I think, I mean, we always have to interact also with those that are not our friends. And we have to do it in a constructive way. Uh, and that includes a lot of countries. And while doing this, we should be realistic and never naive. Um, and, and I also think, where I would like to question your question a bit, mm -hmm. the fact that we would speak frankly with China on human rights. Would that really make it more difficult to have an agreement on climate change? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Because, um, I mean, if, if in a, at least my experience, when, I mean, once you are in a negotiation, if you strike a deal or not, it's really what's in it for me in this negotiation. Yeah. So, so maybe the trade-off isn't really as complicated as it sounds in the question. Yeah, well, I, you know, I... I, I, I maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I, you know, Secretary Kerry's recent visit, for instance, um, you know, basically Xi Jinping was like, not interested, you know. Um, it, it feels to me, I could be wrong, you, and you're right, like you need to do both at the same time. I completely agree with that. It does feel to me like the Chinese have moved away from the kind of compartmentalization of the past, but but we'll see. I think you're right, but they get to do both. Then on that, I think progressives believe in diplomacy. Yeah. And diplomacy is not only talking to your friends. And I think there's really a movement out there of isolation. And I think there's no strength in isolation, which the right is really pushing for. And so that's why I agree uh, that we need to be pragmatic but we need to engage. So I want to ask this way then, are you worried about you know, the US? I mean, I think this is a question that progressives are really gonna have to wrestle with as there's so much momentum towards competition, even conflict with China and kind of Cold War paradigms with China. Um, and the US is kind of fueling this a lot. Our politics is also fueling it. Like, does that concern you? And how do you think you stand up for values and interests against, you know, a, a, at times a very problematic, let's just say government in Beijing without falling into that trap? 
Of course, we are concerned of what is happening in, in the United States, and we're following it closely. Uh, and I think the way that the Euro European Commission is now arguing around China mm -hmm. when it comes to de-risking, mm -hmm. I think that's a smart way of thinking about uh, China, but also other countries that we might not want to be as dependent upon as we are on China or were on Russia. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so really thinking long term, not being too dependent on on countries that we don't want to them to be able to press us in the way that uh, China might do at this moment. I think there. Uh, I think there is also possibility for U United States and, and Europe and Canada to to go in the same direction. Uh, and I think the worst thing, a really bad thing for the world would be if Europe would have to come in a position where we're supposed to cho choose between China or, or United States. We want, I think it would be much better for the world if we could be aligned, putting pressure on China together and also have a, a at least si not the same, but at least a simil similar attitude when we, when we deal with China, both when it comes to trade, but also when it comes, comes to open and frank discussions on democracy yeah. and human yeah. rights. But what is, and, and, and in this, I think it's also really important for we, what you, you were talking about in the beginning is how do we handle the global south? Uh, that we cannot leave, leave the space open for China and Russia in the global south. We have to engage more in the global south. And I'm very happy this is an increasing discussion within the European Union and the leaders in European Union. I said, I really think that is good and important and we need to spend more time on that. But of course, if we're going to be credible, we have to do our homework on the promises that we have made when it comes to reforming IMF, when it comes to the promises in Addis Ababa on, on international finance, financing. So we have to um, address it. We really have to do our homework to be yeah. credible. And there's quite a lot of work to be done. Yeah. To, to the honest one. I'm mindful as we uh, are running a little low on time that it's uh, it's a, the one year anniversary of the death of Masa Amini uh, yeah. and the custody uh, or because of the morality police in Iran. Um, I saw that you, your ministry put out uh, some additional sanctions today yep. on officials. Um, but there's also this sense, right, that is not surprising that, that despite the extraordinary and heroic and courageous activism within Iran and the support of many people in countries around the world, that the regime is dug in um, and this is not is unlikely to be like a rapid evolution inside of Iran. Um, what what do you think the role of Canada, Sweden, the the democratic world writ large, and also kind of just like-minded uh, people around the world? What is our role in trying to end gender apartheid in Iran? Trying to to support mm -hmm. the women who've taken such uh, risks uh, on behalf of their rights in Iran? Well, I think it's about the people in Iran, and it's about also the people living in our countries that are supporting the people in Iran. After this, I'm going to a um, demonstration uh, that is happening in Montreal. There will be 3,000 people uh, to commemorate the death of, of Gina Masai-Mini and at the same time to ask from our government and all, you know, Western governments to put more pressure. 
And the women life freedom uh, movement is one that has not calmed down that much. We have a feminist foreign policy. I know we have. <laughs> yes, I know that. I know we work together on that and with your fantastic foreign minister, Anne Linde, um, on this issue. Uh, but it, it's part of what we do. So making sure that, of course, we shed light on the issue. We continue to isolate and put pressure uh, on, on, on the Iranian regime uh, within multilateral institutions, maybe at the UN, Canada co-sponsors a uh, Iran um, uh, resolution every year. And, you know, we're getting traction uh, to we are also um, because of what happened during the PS752 shooting uh, down um, of by by Iran, we lost many Canadians. So we're f we're uh, now um, suing Iran before uh, the International Court of Justice. We're imposing more sanctions. And now we have this new legislation. The U.S. doesn't have it. The EU doesn't have it yet. But I really hope that that can be the case. From the moment we have sanctioned individuals, now the government of Canada has the power to seize and forfeit their assets. So that's the next step. Because for every person that is being sanctioned in Iran that could have assets in Canada, that then really being able to use these assets and sell them would send a very strong message. So I'm really working hard on this issue also with my officials. Good. And well, I think that that kind of awareness outside of governments in the, in the streets, as you're going to do today, yeah. as well as tools inside of government are so important. Well, look, I'm just, I think there's a lot for us to think about here, connecting domestic concerns around things like cost yeah. of living to the foreign policy discussion, which yeah. I think often we don't do well enough. Um, maintaining support for Ukraine while uh, also drawing the connections between the threats we're feeling in our own democracies and what's happening in Ukraine. Um, perhaps more shared efforts to combat the kind of disinformation and foreign interference uh, inside of our democracies. Cooperation and diplomacy, which progressives have stood for, but not just with each other, but yeah. uh, particularly deep into the global south. And I take your point about um, not accepting the notion of a, a total binary trade-off. Um, and a kind of values-based being on the support side of people who are trying to do the right thing uh, for their their own human dignity in their own countries as in Iran. So yeah. I think you helped us uh, figure out at least. Uh, That's a good some right? Uh, yeah. So very. So thank you. Good podcast. Huh? I, well, you guys are. You know, uh, you're, you're, you're leading. Yeah, you're leading political parties and running governments. I have a podcast, so. Uh, uh, but yeah, I'm glad that you're where you are and I'm where I am. But so everybody, thank our panelists here. It's great. It's great to talk to you. Thank you.